This Meeting on the Go podcast is brought to you by the San Francisco Intergroup of Overeaters Anonymous. Hi, I'm Gabrielle. I put it in here. Does that help? <laughs> um, I'm Gabrielle and I'm a food addict. Hi, and I love coming up here. <laughs> I feel like, um, you know, I'm the out-of-towner. I'm actually, you know, live in San Jose. <laughs> and... Um, I love coming up here because, um, you know, it gives me an hour to sort of get here because I have one of those crazy jobs where my mind um, is running left, right, and center. So I'm focusing in on an aspect of my life that used to rule my life, which is my food addiction. I was born into a food-addicted family. We had the midnight meal every day, and now I understand what the witching hour means. You know, there's this agitation that goes on from 11 p.m., and then poof, it's to the refrigerator, and everything is fine again, you know? And then everyone crashes out. That was the most difficult meal for me to give up when I first came to OA. The idea of three moderate meals a day sounded hideous to me. You know, I only had one meal all day long. You know, that's how I ate. I mean, didn't everybody else always have something going? So that was a a rude awakening. But, you know, when I think about... um, You know, the context in which my addiction happened, I really believe nothing happens in a vacuum. My uh, family were, well, they still are, from Europe. And after the Second World War, they migrated to Australia. So they were in a foreign land. And they wanted to leave the war behind and start a brand new life. And what psychology didn't know back in 1949 and 1950 is that what you don't work out, your children will act out. (laughs) And uh, we know that today because, you know, of all the brilliant people that have come forth and written fabulous books and our 12-step program has taught us that, that you can't suppress anything as a human being. You can't suppress your spirit, you can't suppress your emotions, you can't suppress your uh, thinking without consequences. So I was the child that spilt out everything. My parents were, you know, like the typical 1950s parents. They said bad things about you behind your back, but were very nice to you to your face. And I couldn't handle that. So when people would knock on the door, I'd say, Mommy and Daddy don't like you, and slam the door in their face, you know? (laughs) So I got into trouble a lot because I was the truth teller, you know? I didn't know that you're supposed to lie to people. (laughs) Um, And I still have trouble with that today. I've had to learn to be cordial and keep my thoughts to myself. And in fact, I take it even further where if I don't like someone, 
I have to reframe it that, you know, I have an issue, and, but I can still be in the same room with them and it not be a problem. I don't like being a hypocrite. I don't like to be overly friendly with someone when I don't want to be, you know? It's just not in my nature. But I'm no longer rude to people, you know? <laughs> like I was as a child. Anyway, what happened to me is that I was bulimic and anorexic as a child. And then at 10, I discovered sugar. Oh my God, sugar and flour products were everywhere. And I immediately put on weight and didn't care because for the first time in my life, instead of being aggravated by the hypocrisy around me, and I don't know if anyone lived through the 1950s, I would say hypocrisy was the word. You know, you had um, a wife and a child and a pet and a car and a washing machine and everyone had to pretend everything's fabulous because the war was behind us now. Now we're going to have Marilyn Monroe and, and um, you know, Elvis Presley and all this fabulousness. And no one ever looked at how they felt for real and that didn't matter because the war was over and capitalism was upon us and everyone had stuff and television happened and you know all these great things and I freaked out because I didn't know what to do with that because I could feel what was happening behind the scenes. And I think that is the basis of my food addiction is that I can feel what's behind the scenes. If you're smiling at me but really you hate my guts, I can feel that. But I don't know what to do with it, so I implode and go eat. <laughs> That's my natural reaction because I don't know what to do with that. I have no intellectual construct to deal with that because that's what I grew up with. So what happened to me is that I just kept on putting on weight and because um, I'm a gay woman, I never did a diet because that was the natural lifestyle. You just got bigger and meaner and you got the girls and, and that's all that mattered. <laughs> and I had a big motorcycle, you know, it's hard to believe I was a bull dyke. In the <laughs> no, it's, uh, it's hard to believe. <laughs> but I was, if only I could, you know, um, have captured those photographs. I, I really looked very different. <laughs> so anyway, I got into 12-step programs like most addicted people eventually do. And I discovered Overeaters Anonymous 30 years ago. And uh, 30 years ago in Australia, OA was in a dingy basement. It was sort of like, ew, <laughs> the most horrible thing you could do. Um, it was seedy. There was a nun, you know, why would a nun be there? So, <laughs> so you can just imagine, bull dyke lesbian, you know, um, anyway. It was quite a sight. And what they talked about is quit eating sugar. 
I went, okay. So I quit eating sugar and I lost a hundred pounds, you know, and I've maintained that because I'm determined. And, you know, the other context I have to tell you is um, <laughs> in Australia, we have nationalized medicine. And you know that uh, when the government runs the medical system, they want to do it the most efficient way. And they discovered that, you know, you have a certain amount of treatment and then the majority of the dollars goes into prevention. And so the propaganda was um, about eating healthy and that you ruin your liver by eating, you know, certain foods. Um, you know, uh, confectionaries uh, will give you liver damage. And I actually had liver damage from the food I ate, not so much from the alcohol I drank. And they knew that back in the 1970s. So because they researched the stuff. So they told me, you know, and you're heading toward diabetes and, you know, all kinds of stuff. They were telling me in the 1970s, well, what do you mean? <laughs> and um, so anyway, I got scared into quitting sugar. Mainly because the people in OA said so. You know, you do what you're told. So I lost 100 pounds. I also lost my personality. You know, I became friendly. And <laughs> that was so not my dyke image. And I was really afraid that no woman would ever want to date me again because I didn't know what do you do on a date when you're friendly. You know, I was used to being on a date and being aggressive and aloof and, you know, all those horrible things that you do on a date to make people feel uncomfortable. <laughs> so here I am, you know, saying hideous things like, oh my God, you're so gorgeous, you know. Tell me about yourself. <laughs> all, these, <laughs> all these things, you know, just splattered out of my um, head. So anyway, I discovered that, you know, um, as much as I did badly dating as a, you know, a huge woman, I was doing equally badly as a thinner woman, and it didn't matter, you know. Dating issues are dating issues no matter what your personality. <laughs> you know, mainly because, you know, in the 1950s, they didn't teach you how to date whether you're heterosexual or gay, you know. My dating experience was reading hideous um, lesbian novels where they all drank gin and wore um, cowboy boots, you know. So what do you learn from that? Oh, big cigarettes. <laughs> so um, I didn't learn much from that. Um, and I didn't learn much from my heterosexual friends. I'm one of those gay people that loves everybody. I'm a total extrovert. I don't care if you're gay, straight, in the middle, transgender, whatever. And because um, I've always felt I could learn from anyone about anything. And that's very true because deep down there's the need to love the fear of failure, um, the hurt and pain of all kinds of things, and it doesn't matter who you are, we all have those experiences. And so um, I'm, gla I'm glad and grateful for that. So what happened to me in a way is that I got thinner, and I didn't quite know what to do with it. So um, I discovered that I was the only one in OA uh, that actually quit sugar. 
you know? <laughs> you know, because I kept wondering, how come you guys haven't lost weight? You know, what the heck? And <laughs> it's because I did it. And they didn't. They just talked about it. And, you know, back then, 30 years ago, OA was much newer than it is now, and there wasn't as much experience. <laughs> and so, you know, I started working with people to quit sugar. You know, I challenged them. I made bets, you know, all those good program techniques in getting people <laughs> to quit sugar. You know, I had ceremonies where we threw our scales into the garbage, um, you know, got plates, um, and we were trying to figure out what a moderate meal looked like, you know, and we you know, had competitions. <laughs> it was really a lot of fun. And what we discovered is fellowship. And um, that's something that, as recovering food addicts, I've always appreciated is the fellowship, you know, that we help each other. You know, we all have different issues on different days. So all of us are sick and well at the same time, depending on what the issue is. And so we're all capable of helping each other because we're all well about something. You know, and I'm usually extremely good about things I'm working out. You know, I can tell you what you need to do because I'm working on it. Does that make sense? Isn't that weird? So, um, what happened is I had no idea I had yet another uh, food addiction issue. I grew up with um, a parent who used laxatives all the time. And when you give up bulimia and you give up binge eating, then you get constipated. I don't know about you, but my body didn't like it. I had nothing to push it through. <laughs> so, of course, I used laxatives. I trot over to America in 1984. And I go to an OA um, party and I overhear somebody saying that our bodies are meant to function normally. Boom! That hit me right in the gut. And that's the day I gave up laxatives. And that's sort of like the last part of my eating disorder that I had to give up. And guess what? My body started functioning normally because I gave it up, not because I quit. You know, have you ever noticed that when you quit something, it's like, ah! And it's very difficult to maintain. But when I give it up, it's a spiritual uh, ritual where I give it up to some higher power. Now, the ritual I did was I threw the laxatives out the window, um, and I hope a homeless person didn't take them. But, uh, you know, I just did this whole ritual. It was herbal tea. Of course, I did the natural, you know. Uh, herbal tea laxative and I just gave it to a higher power and that's why my body was fine after that so since then you know in San Jose and Boston there's this uh, OA program called OA90 and it's a little bit more 
precise, you know. And four years ago, I hit the precise program uh, because somebody else wanted to go. So I, you know, helped them go along, and um, I'm the one that stayed. And what's different about it is there's a food plan, and also we don't do sugar and flour. I went, who knew that flour was also one of my drugs? You know, when I go through Whole Foods, it's amazing how many flour products I have, you know, indulged in that I don't anymore. So what happened four years ago, I lost another 40-something pounds. So I'm now a 142-pounder lost, <laughs> whatever. I'm basically half the weight I used to be. So does that mean I'm a double lesbian? <laughs> I could be in a relationship with myself. So, um, <laughs> so, um, you know, one time I said, you know, I'm half the weight I used to be and twice the woman I used to be, you know. Ah. Um, I wish that was true. I'm not that developed. You know, I recently discovered that part of my original issues with people, you know, as a tiny little child, and I still can't figure out why this is so, but I had people who kept lying about stuff. You know, I had one person lying about the neighbor next door, and then the neighbor lied about somebody else, and I'm, and I'm as an adult, looking back, and I just recently had the same thing happen where people are lying to me about all these other people. I'm going, why is it important to you that I believe your lie? I would understand if I was Madonna and you're trying to sell me a clothing line and are willing to lie your, through your teeth to get my attention, right? I can understand that. But I'm just a regular human being, like I don't give a shit about whether this person thinks that or this. Why is it important to you that I have this impression of someone? So, you know, it's one of those little funny mysteries, but it was also, it's one of those mysteries that drives my stomach crazy. You know, this outside force that, you know, let's play with lies. It's the thing that got me being bulimic as a baby because I just didn't understand what this was all about. So as an adult, I have had to unravel this kind of insanity and I've had to accept the fact that not everyone is well. You know, I know that sounds very Al-Anon, but it's also what prevents me from being bulimic is understanding that not everyone has good intentions, means well, and I have to be okay with that. You know, being a total extrovert, I've always had this fantasy that I'm going to be friends with every single person I meet. You know, I just went on a cruise with 2,000 lesbians. I just could not wait to meet them all <laughs> until I realized maybe I shouldn't want to meet all of them. <laughs> you know, not meaning quantity, but quality. 
you know? And it's, I'm not saying that I'm a better person than somebody else. I'm probably bad news for, for some people as well, just by the nature of who I am. And, um, and that is a very difficult reality for me to face. I have always seen the world as a friendly place until you prove otherwise. And I have always admired introverts who believe the world is unsafe until you prove you're safe, which could take a lifetime if you've ever lived with a total introvert. <laughs> I have. Um, so, you know, it's very interesting. You know, facing reality in some ways sucks, but it's what um, saves my food addiction. You know, putting the food down is really just the first step and the rest of the program is where it's really at and that can take a lifetime to really master you know finding a power that is greater than my addiction I've got to integrate into my intellect and I've got to integrate into my heart and then bring those two together and that's that's really the hard work because you know I have my fantasy life about what I believe life should be and then I have reality and they rarely jive you know and it's very frustrating and you know I just turned 60 years old and I feel like I'm still emotionally young because this is how a young person is you know a fantasy of how things should be and how come it's not you know I feel like I throw tantrums you know how could they say that about so and so you know this is high school stuff and I'm still reacting on that level and it's very frustrating being an emotionally young person in an old body you know I have expectations of what it should be like at 60 <laughs> and I'm just not it you know I am just you know still getting a handle on how to be with people how to love the world despite itself and how to love myself despite my fallibilities, you know, that's a hard one. You know, it really, really is hard. So I've done about four, no, three years worth of work dealing with finding my boundaries with different people and their levels of lying, you know. Um, somehow, this issue has been big because almost every person has come, become a friend, um, a date, or um, something else that's been close to me has had some level of a lying issue. So I'm going, okay, God, I get it. <laughs> I have to work on it. And you have no idea how hard it was for me not to lie back. Do you know when you're in a room full of lies, it's easier to lie with it. And I can outlie anyone because I had many teachers. And to stay in this program means staying in the truth. And it's like, oh, 
very frustrating. And it's staying in the truth about what I eat, how much I eat, about whether I'm abstinent, whether, you know, blah, blah, blah. But it's also whether I'm honest with myself about who I am and what happened between me and somebody else. Was I aggressive and mean? And thank God, and, you know, and am I going, oh, thank goodness they're so sedated they don't even notice? I still owe them an amends. <laughs> you know what I mean? I do, because I noticed. My spirit noticed. You know, am I honest about my, my spiritual program? Am I really living it? Am I kind to people even when I don't feel like it? You know, am I going that extra mile um, to be at a meeting so that the meeting is that much stronger because one more person person is there you know it's 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 a tough life being in recovery because the addiction wants me dead and wants me in that refrigerator with big supplies that's basically it and that is so much easier spiraling downhill than it is trudging the road to happy destiny, you know? And um, one of the things I'm working on right now is my resistance to exercise. So I decided, you know, I'm going to hang out with people who walk their dogs and go with them. <laughs> Boy, it's exhausting. How do these little four-legged people make it up the hill? <laughs> you know, I'm like <laughs> dragging behind. You know, I'm the one with the tongue out. You know, <laughs> I'm so unfit because I have allowed that resistance. You know, and so I'm trying to trick myself into doing exercise because that's part of um, being a healthy person in recovery basically you know we all know that everybody here probably knew what a healthy meal was that exercise was a good thing that having enough sleep and a low stress lifestyle being surrounded by loving people and having some kind of spiritual practice everyone knew that that was a good idea but you know we're not here because we did that it's because we did, couldn't do it because my addiction ingredient sabotaged all of those things. You know, in, um, in San Jose, they have this whole, you know, public health campaign, eat more vegetables and fruit. And, you know, I go to the meetings and say, that's a very nice billboard, but, you know, when you're addicted to sugar and flour and crap, that billboard means nothing. Everybody knows that it's a good idea to eat more fruits and vegetables. You need a better slogan that inspires people to do it, not to know it. Because we already know that. So, you know, I'm starting to get political here. <laughs> but, um, you know, I um, am amazed that uh, the OA program has evolved over time, just like all the other 12-step programs have. I'm delighted by that, that our conventions are getting better and better, and that the recovery is getting better and better, and that 
even I'm getting better and better because I'm working it, you know? Um, there was this friend of mine who said, why do you still go to the meetings? I went three times and, you know, after a while they just said the same shit over and over again, you know? She's one of those people who says, got it, now what? Tell me something new, you know? And I'm going... Have you ever heard of the concept that when you have an addiction, this addiction will take that knowledge you have and not only twist it around and make it something else. I don't know if you've ever done that. You've heard this great spiritual thing at a meeting and by the time you're home, you know, it's something else and it's a way to be mean to people, <laughs> you know. Um, and I was trying to explain that my addiction is like an alien being that lives in my body and has its own agenda. I personally, I, Gabrielle, am this angel that wants to do wonderful things in my life, but then I have this alien, also called Gabrielle, that has a completely different agenda that wants to wreak havoc and both live in the same body. So what am I going to do to make the one I want, the authentic one, live a full life? So I'm gonna to have to find a battle, you know, that works. And the only one we know that works is a spiritual path, whatever that is, you know, and practicing that spirituality and being together to remind each other that that little alien being is looking for ways to get me. And uh, it's the only way I can explain it. So is that it? Yep. Thank you. <laughs>